Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. We're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in. This is episode 171. 171. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, it feels like we've been going a year. We missed one week, and it feels like it's just been a while since we've been on the show. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what's up with Steph, the intern? She's sent like 400 articles to re- for us to talk about today. Yeah, we had a lot of articles. I had to, yeah. I had to pick and choose through some of them. We would have been here until <laughs> next week. Now, I opened up the email, and I was like, dang, Steph. Okay. <laughs> We're not doing a mega show, but... I, and, and I say that, and then I went to check the reviews this morning, and it's like a, there's a small conspiracy going on. Uh, we picked up a five-star review, which you know, is all we really get, so that's not surprising. But it says it's by Stefan the Great, which is very close to Stephanie, so I don't know if there's a correlation there or not. Just saying, enjoy listening to the show and catching up on the news. I might have missed. Interesting to hear your point of views and the guests y'all have on. Speaking of guests, thank you for the five-star review, Stefan the Great. Um we will have on Anas Alahaji here in just a minute, actually bring him on early. So that will be that. And this is the final episode before the show roundtable webinar, whatever you want to call it. You got to register when this comes, when will this come out, Nate? Tomorrow. Nate's tomorrow. Tomorrow. What time? Like, tomorrow. Like, by, like when they wake up, it'll be there. It'll, yeah. Midnight. Okay. Tomorrow. So when this comes out, you got to click the registration button and you got to sign up. Like, because it's at 1 p.m. Central Time tomorrow. We have Anas, uh, DRW, Ellen, and uh, David Blackman. And so, should be a good event, Josh. Today, we have uh, our guest, Dr. Anas Alhaji. He is an energy expert, and he is joining us on the show today. Dr. Anas, uh, you got a big day tomorrow with, uh, with Ryan and several people in the roundtable. Uh, but today we got you on the show to discuss some of the recent things going on in the oil market. So glad to have you on today. Sure. Thank you very much. I think tomorrow I'm very excited about tomorrow simply because the subject is very specific and very dear to a lot of people. And uh, people do not realize that people around the world are interested in knowing more about shale because they know it was it changed the oil market. It changed the world trade in oil. And everyone around the world is interested in shale. The problem we have is that there are many people around the world who are talking about shale, but they never basically put a foot in Texas or in the Permian or in Eagle Ford. And they, they literally know what they read about it. They don't have people on the ground basically to tell them what it is. And that's leading to a lot of misinformation around the world. So I'm very excited about tomorrow. Yeah, and, and one of the things I've kind of said is that we have, uh, so yourself, Ellen Wald, uh, DRW, and David Blackman, you all kind of have different perspectives. So it's not only do you have kind of experts, we all have a different vantage point on how you see the industry, which will hopefully allow for some clarifications and maybe to destroy, to draw some lines on well, why Anas thinks this and you know David Blackman thinks this and help people understand the difference because if you go read a Bloomberg or a Bloomberg article about the oil and gas industry, that's usually written for like a trader. And so what they're talking about is kind of hard to understand how that translates down to maybe an oil field worker, but we kind of have a good, a good range of panelists to kind of cipher through um, what everyone's saying and hopefully get folks on the same page moving forward. 
Yes, uh, and simply because it's different backgrounds, different experiences, and, and that matters in this uh, perspective. But I would like to add one more thing to it, that when we talk about shale, we are talking about the livelihood of millions of people. People do not understand this point. This is very important. Oil and gas is owned privately in the United States, except the ones on federal land and, and uh, in, the, in the federal waters. So it, it does affect the life of millions of people, and, and that include uh, almost half a million people who work directly in the industry. That includes about a million and a half who support the industry, and then all the people who own the land and the mineral rights and people in towns in various counties who make money out of uh, serving or out of uh, being in, working in the city or the county or uh, those who are working in the water department or uh, the power department and others. So we are not talking about just a normal business uh, and some people are just making money out of it. We are talking about millions of people, uh, their livelihood basically is affected by it. So two things I wanted to kind of get in with you today. Um, one, we have the BP report that came out, I guess it was this morning or over the weekend, kind of making headlines. And two, just kind of update folks on OPEC. We hadn't talked to OPEC a lot here recently. So um, I'll let you kind of pick which one you want to start with, uh, the news from BP or kind of update our listeners on what's going on with OPEC. Well, uh, as I said on uh, Twitter, uh, there is not enough eggs in the world, basically, to cover the forecast that uh, demand for oil will peak in early 2020s. This is something outrageous in every sense uh, for many, many reasons. And the issue here is as simple as this, just do the math. If you think it's electric vehicles, well, let's do it. If you think it's the coronavirus, well, let's do the calculations and see what, what, what's going on and what uh, happened. Yes, we lost uh, some demand because people are not traveling and not moving around, et cetera. We lost some demand because people are unemployed, et cetera, et cetera. But people do not understand this, this point that I'm going to mention now. If you bring someone from the forest who never been in urban settings and put them in an apartment, there is no way back. Whether they work or not, they work, whether they make an income or not, there is no way back. This is irreversible. Urbanization is irreversible. So those who lost their jobs, don't expect them that they are going to forego the nice life they have before. The moment they get a job, they are going to go back to it. And the moment they get the job, they are going to go buy, buy that car and they are going to buy that whatever they want to buy. So th th this is kind of a general comment. But as a specific comment, if we just do the math, we know if electric cars are replacing ICE cars, that internal combustion engines, we know exactly how much they are replacing. And we know how many electric cars basically are planned to come on the market. So let's do the calculations and see what, what the impact is. Ray, think about it this way. Oil demand, global oil demand was about 100 million barrels a day in 2019. To stay at 100 million in 2050, in 2050, to stay at 100 million, we need at least, at least 700 million electric vehicles on the road by then. 
Right. So let, yeah. let me let me right now right now we have only about ten million. Okay, so you have you, you talk about the math, and this is why I like to talk about the per capita oil usage. So if you look at how the world economy has grown from 1900 to 2000 or to 2020, especially post 1950, and you look at how uh, poverty alleviation has happened globally, it may not keep that same pace from 2020 to you know 2050 or 2070 or 2080. But generally speaking, it's going to go up and to the right. And when you look at per capita oil usage for people in India, Pakistan, and China, they are not using much oil at all. And so if they go up just a little bit, you talk about the math, the sheer number of people who do not use that or consume that much oil is um, is staggering. And so it's hard to even balance out, um, even if you can see the EV point, which I think you're, you're very right about, even if you can see that, the other ways that we use oil and people in these emerging markets will use it. it it's, it's, it's inconceivable that we can't, we're at peak demand right now. You are right. And uh, about more than a year and a half ago, I attended a conference in Abu Dhabi. And uh, an official from one of the African countries was extremely angry at the comments that's been made by some people regarding this. And he said, now, after you guys enjoyed all this life in Norway and Sweden and England and Germany and all that stuff, now when I want to be just like you, you are telling me I cannot be like you. This is pure discrimination. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, regarding OPEC, uh, we have the uh, GMMC me meeting, which is a monthly meeting right now. They are going to meet this week, and we'll see what the uh, outcome, what, what the most important outcome out of it is to see the statement, especially by uh, uh, Prince uh, Abdelaziz bin Salman, who is the uh, Saudi energy minister, uh, what he's going to say about the uh, compensation uh, of the countries that violated their quota in uh, May in April, sorry, in May and June, uh, they are supposed to cut just like any other OPEC member and then they have to cut extra to compensate for their violations. And they're supposed to comply. And we will see what, what the results are, what the numbers are and what he's going to say about that because their compliance is very uh, important. That's really the most important point about the GMMC meeting. There was an article, a couple articles came out, uh, Dr. Anas. One was that, uh, uh, they recently reduced uh, their, some of the prices as they're selling to the U.S. and Asia. Um, yes. And that has caused you know, the oil prices to kind of falter. Um, you think, do, you, do you see that's going to be an issue going forward as oil demand starts to recover in the next couple of months? Do you think they're going, going to um, continue to put a squeeze on the U.S. on the U.S. side for production? Uh, I don't believe that prices declined because of the Saudi prices. Uh, mm. there, there were people who were predicting the decline even before the announced, announced before the Saudis announced uh, the price. Uh, but the media, of course, always looks for a big bang, so that was in front of them, and they said it. Uh, the reason why they uh, reduced that simply because the uh, the if you look at the price differentials and you look what's going on in in Asia. Uh, it is very normal to do that. Uh, yet, one of the issues we have to look at is they are still cutting production no matter what. Uh, so I think prices declined simply because we had the decline in uh, uh, demand growth in general. Uh, we have a weak market. Uh, if you look at distillate inventories, basically they are 
higher than the five-year average by about like 23, 24%, which is extremely high. Uh, refineries are not uh, doing very well. Their margins are very low, so there is no incentive to increase their demand for uh, crude. And then we lost a couple of refineries because of Hurricane Laura. They are still offline until today. And those refineries, the demand basically is not there. Other refiners are not compensating because of the low margins. So the demand for crude is not there. That would lower the price on its own anyway. Now, yes, when refiners do not uh, basically produce that much, the uh, inventories of products will decline. And we are already seeing this. The problem is it's declining from a very high base. So we're not going to see that impact on prices if destillates inventories are 24% higher than the five-year average. You can tell that it takes time until we see the impact on prices. Yeah, and that, that's kind of been lost in all this is that if you go back to, to January um, when the U.S. Um, you know, killed Soleimani and then Iran fired the, the, the missile in Iraq, I remember I kind of bring this up because um, – that was kind of one of those moments where you might expect the prices to get kind of high. And so like the prices were like, eh, whatever. And there was no real threat of coronavirus. I mean, it was kind of being talked about in China some, but it was not what we saw in March and April, May and the prices didn't really care. And so that's, you know, there was nothing to move the prices as far as, um, you know, fear of yeah. production shortages. And even real quick, the Saudi the attack on the Saudi infrastructure last year, it set the prices up for a little bit, but prices have really not responded to, um, at least going up to production shortages. And so we shouldn't be surprised that it's going to take a longer time to, to balance the market. Out. There is uh, an issue here that is, I think it's very important. And I think we should utilize this term. Uh, I call it the demand trap and the supply trap. We have a supply trap and demand trap. We end up with a demand trap when demand or consumption does not react to prices regardless of whatever you do, which means that if you lower the price of a barrel of oil to negative, demand is not going to move. If people are staying home because of corona, whatever the price out there, they're staying home. So the demand is trapped and, and part of the demand right now is trapped that whatever the difference between 92 million and 100, that's the 8 million, that's really trapped. And it will be free. And that's another reaction to BP report that once those 8 million comes out of the trap, it is there. It's just being trapped. Mm -hmm. Same thing with supply. Whether oil prices go to 100 or they go to 25, some of the supply is not going to react no matter what because of various reasons. So we do have both right now, but it seems that the demand trap is affecting the uh, uh, affecting oil prices more than the uh, supply trap. Speaking of supply and demand, uh, China has been kind of making some headlines. It was, you know, a few months back, there was a lot of Americans that were mad at China for buying our oil. <laughs> well, they stopped, they've slowed down their buying and the prices have responded. Maybe I think it seems correlated to me. I'm curious what you think about that. It seems that there's, there's some correlation there. Um, what are your thoughts on what China's doing with the oil markets? There, there are several issues with China. The first thing is, when prices collapsed and then OPEC uh, plus met and they tried to rescue the market after, as you know, after President Trump made the comments, the, they announced that several countries are going to buy oil for the SPR and storage and they were happy about it. 
That was a big mistake because yes, they were buying it, but they are not consuming it. That's going to go to storage. Mm -hmm. So storage continued to build up until it's full. Once it's full, they have to end up with a floating storage. And the floating storage in China is extremely high. It's probably 80 to 85 right now, 85 million barrels a day, uh, not a day, but 85 million barrels. And that, that is adding to the problems. Why now China has to import more if their storage is full and they have the floating storage? Right. So in a sense, from an OPEC plus point of view, there is, an, in case of a crisis, there is an optimum they should allow consumers to buy. And after that, they are not uh, they are not supposed to do to to let them buy because that will will harm them in the medium term, as we see today. They should have basically cut more and reduce the sales to China and others, so they won't have this problem in the coming months. Okay, I know um, I got one more. I don't know if Josh has one more or not, but one more for me. And um, I don't. Not from the U.S. shale perspective, because we're going to answer the U.S. shale side of this in the webinar tomorrow. Correct. From the OPEC side, um, how do you think, will this change how the coronavirus pandemic, will this change how OPEC responds to oil prices moving forward? So in other words, will we see them be more aggressive, less aggressive? Again, and if they want to hear your answer for the shale side, <laughs> not to go yes. to the webinar, but from the OPEC side, how do you well, think? Go ahead. General, generally speaking, it is very clear uh, that... OPEC is more responsive than ever. It is more flexible, and we will get strong responses to various events from now on. They already went through the exercise, so they know how to do it, and they know how to do it quickly and remotely too, which was, because thinking about remotely, that was not even a choice, let's say, two years ago. So now they can do it quickly, and they can do it remotely and make decisions quickly, so I think we are going to see more, stronger reactions to changes in the market either way. I mean, whether increase or decrease. Let's say we, we lose the oil, uh, uh, the oil export of a certain country because of political chaos. I think they are going to respond probably within 48 hours. And do you, do you, think, uh, do you think the Saudis are going to still be in any sort of uh, contention with Russia after the coronavirus has hit? Has that kind of gotten... Is that, is it, are we kind of through that, do you think? One of the main lessons we learned in the oil business, given all the economic and political factors that affect it, is never say never. So yeah. we cannot discount anything, <laughs> period. It just from time to time, we can kind of increase the probability of certain things happening. But to discount anything in the oil market is, is not a wise move. So things could happen, and happened before, it could happen again. It seems that the interest at the current time is aligned, and that alignment is serving both of them really well. At the same time, there are various groups that are trying to break this alliance or cause problems, and they might succeed sometimes. But generally speaking, right now, the interest is aligned. But we have to make a distinction between two things. I'm making a prediction here. It is very clear that when are in a crisis, that both of them are going to act as they are buddies. When we are not in a crisis, but we need some adjustment to the market, they may not be as cooperative. But in that case, Saudi Arabia 
can adjust the market on its own. It does not read Russia. It does not need Russia. So in a sense, we have to distinguish based on the severity mm. of the crisis. If we have a severe crisis, they both of them are aligned and they will work very well. If there is just minor adjustment to the market, they may not work well. And I know the media is going to take it kind of, oh, there are problems. No, there are no problems. But uh, these are minor, my, minor changes and Saudis and their allies in the Gulf can make the changes on their own. Okay, so tomorrow on the webinar and for the listeners, as soon as this goes live, you will have time to sign up still. Of course, we'll be promoting on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, we're going to talk about predictions. We're going to talk about the biggest issues facing the shell companies for the rest of the year and into 2020. Talk about is Wall Street done with EMPs? Does the shell industry face a tech problem? Can technology actually solve some of these money issues we've seen historically? Um, what role will the majors play? Obviously, we're talking about BP. What role will they play in the shell industry moving forward? Crude quality. Is it still an issue? We're going to ask that tomorrow to the great Dr. Anas to see what he says and our other panelists and shell quality. You can't forget shell quality either. Talk yeah. about the election, 2020 election, Biden and Trump. What impact will that play? Um, federal lands, all kinds of stuff, labor shortages, China, friend or fro. Now, that China, now, what you talk about with Russia and the Saudi, the China angle there is quite interesting because China has deals with Iran now. They work with Saudi. They work with Russia. And, of course, they're getting pressure from the EU to, to maybe change some of that. So that's that's an interesting thing. OPEC, OPEC Plus, talk about some of that, obviously. Um, should shell companies be concerned about another price war? Dr. Nas and others will answer that tomorrow. Uh, how long can they survive these low prices? And a few other topics. It should be a fun event, Dr. Anas. I'm excited tomorrow, 1 o'clock Central Standard Time. Uh, hope everyone makes it out there. Thank you for your time hopping on short notice today. Just for the international uh, audience, uh, when we talk about Central Time, we are talking about Chicago or Houston time. Yes. Thank you for that clarification. Uh, we've had several several international signups as well. So um, look forward to having everyone there. And uh, anyways, it should be fun. And I had someone say the other day, they said, uh, they sent me a text, they said, this is this might be the best entertainment they're going to see all month because it's it's such a cast of characters that we have <laughs> tomorrow. So, uh, Doctor Anas, it was good to see you, and we will Thank talk you. to you tomorrow. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day. Big thanks to Anas again for coming on the show. It was great having him. Uh, Ryan, there was a few things that uh, I was wanting to jump into earlier, um, but uh, Doctor Anas, we had him coming on the show early this morning. So uh, there's a few stories that came out, and the first one was we saw oil drop for the first time um, in consecutive weeks since uh, since the price started to drop um, back in March. Uh, so uh, it, it seems like the the price started going is kind of stayed pretty stable and has kind of started going up, and then it dropped uh, in the last couple of weeks. You think you mentioned China um, in the interview with uh, Dr. Anas. Yeah. They stopped buying oil from us. We slow saw that. Yeah. Say that again. I think they, I don't think they completely stopped, but slowed down for sure. Slow down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and then the Saudis, they, they reduced prices. I think it was by like a dollar and 40 cents to the U S I think they reduced prices to China. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there's a lot going on. A lot of, a lot of moving pieces. Um, he mentioned the refinery, the refineries right. that got hit by, right. by Laura. Um, so there's a few things going on that's this kind of softening the price a little bit. Yeah, so you, you have to, it's kind of funny to, to say this, but it's it's not necessarily supply and demand that's been driving the oil market, as we always talk about the market. China was buying oil in excess. Now, mm-hmm. 
that's a market response and they're, they're fine to do that, but it's not the, tra- the traditional supply and demand that we would think of it as, right? So Josh needs a six pack of Dr. Peppers, so he goes and buys one. They were kind of buying in excess because there was, a, there was a sale, if you will. So that probably had the prices artificially inflated too soon. You know, and so now you're seeing the prices come back down um, into into reality, if you will. And the question now is: is are the prices at you know, right now? It's at thirty seven thirty. Is this kind of where they should be, or maybe trying to inflate the market to where, without that, the prices would be even lower right now? So um, you know, they kind of give the market a little bit more confidence. So those are questions that we're going to we'll, we'll find out moving forward. I know the the news literally has turned. We're all going to die with coronavirus the, like the past 24 hours. So that's going to be something to see. Will we see more shutdowns? Will we see people starting to kind of, uh, like you said, when I was in the field, cab up when it was a storm? People, folks start to start cabbing up. Um, I, I don't know those answers, but if you start to see that as we get into, we're not in the flu season yet, but I mean, it's, it's coming, right? It's coming. So how will is, that is impact things? Is there renewed stuff about uh, about the coronavirus coming out and killing everybody again? Yeah, I, I was looking at some articles over uh, this morning. You know, I think uh, Dr. Fauci said, you know, it's going to be just time to hunker down or something like that. Um, the WHO had something. I'm trying to think. I've kind of looked at a handful of stuff, so I don't have it in front of me here. But anyways, so, you know, now if that happens, that's one thing. Talking about it doesn't necessarily mean anything, but those are kind of the, the things to look for as we get into winter. So peak driving demand for, for summertime, the U.S. is gone. That time's coming gone. So you would expect, let me say like this, you might see demand goes up from July, right? Because no one was driving in June or July, but year over year. So from this September to last September, you would expect the, the, the amount of gasoline demand to go down. Does that make sense? Yeah. Year over year, it should be down. But for the past three, four months, it should be up. And so those are the kind of trends you'd be looking for to see you know, are people getting out and about? Are they moving around? Um, you know, if you get to September, October and people in, in the year over year gasoline demand is up and that would be a really good sign, but I, I don't think there's any reason to, to think that would, that would be happening. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, if you look at this, the presidential um, election kind of follow the campaign cycle, uh, their campaign visits. I've kind of followed that because I know Trump was trying to do some, they were getting canceled because of coronavirus stuff. And so it kind of helps you get a different perspective of who's open or not, because, you know, some random city and, you know, Illinois or Nevada or wherever, me and you wouldn't know what's going on there. But if you see like a campaign event or a concert or something like that, get shut down, then you kind of have an idea that maybe that part of the country is uh, is still under some kind of lockdown or restrictions. So, mm. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how, how all that plays out. It's unfortunate. I mean, I, the, the numbers that I'm seeing, um, I mean, there, it seems to be the, the – even the number of cases are declining pretty substantially, uh, especially here in Texas. Well, uh, there was a article that uh, Stephen, an intern, sent over, Industry Warns of Consequences of Federal Leasing Ban. So one of the things that uh, the Biden campaign um, said was they uh, would like to, let's see, eventually end leasing for oil and gas development on public lands and waters. Um, this would affect uh, Gulf of Mexico, uh, so Texas and Louisiana, you know, those Gulf states would be hit particularly hard by something like this. Um, so that some of the talks of that were going out, and so there's uh, Todd Staples, he ended up having some comments saying that people don't realize the, the drastic consequences that this would have for especially those two states, 
And um, he said there was, you know, a, a rally around statements like this to, to get people in the energy sector to kind of band together. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know what to make of the polls. The polls say that Texas is close right now. And I put something about that on LinkedIn and everybody got mad. I'm not saying that it is close. I'm saying that's what the polls say. Um, we'll see what happens. This is important because if Biden were to win, win Texas, I'm not saying he is or he isn't. I'm just saying if he were to, then there is a mandate at least to put out something like this, right? Because if Texas votes for Biden, then whatever he wants to do on energy policy, um, then he's not going to be worried about, um, you know, a lot of blowback because, you know, he has the state. Um if Texas gets, you know, if Texas is, you know, strong for um, Trump or what, or, you know, or even wins for Trump, obviously I think that'd be a little bit harder for him to do. Um, but that's, I think that's gonna be interesting to watch, you know, is, is Texas really in play or not? And I mean, you look at some of these polls they are saying Texas is in play and then Nevada's in play. It's like, well, if Nevada's in play, then is Texas really in play? Because Nevada being in play would be a good thing for Trump. Anyways, I don't get off all that. I think that's gonna be kind of the thing here is how does the election shape up? You know, if, if Biden gets absolutely pummeled, um, in Texas by Trump, you know, I don't, I don't know what kind of mandate he would have to, to, to pull that off. And that's the thing. It's not, that's what's so weird about these, these federal leases is why can't you, uh, you know, pick and choose where you, where you revoke the privileges for, right. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like Trump has the offshore ban uh, off the East coast over there, what, what, whatever. Okay. We talk about that another day, but you know, that, that is what it is, but you don't necessarily have to ban fracking for every single um, you know, parcel of BLM. So, um, and I don't think, I really don't think Biden was the best candidate on fracking. I have a hard time believing that he's flipped this quick. I got a feeling he's more doing it for, uh, you know, trying to get votes than anything else. So, yeah, I, I don't know. That's going to be the question. I mean, he's got some, uh, some pretty far left people on, on his, uh, on his campaign helping him, but, uh, he was definitely the no, most that's, moderate that's the contradiction. I agree. Right. That, yeah. that, like he has AOC on his energy policy or whatever it is campaign. So that's the, that's the thing. Um, does he, you know, really is, is, is AOC there to actually, uh, she's obviously there to get votes for him, but is she there to actually get votes because he believes in like the green new deal or is he, just, is she just there to get votes because he's trying to, to, to land progressives and um, you know, I mean, I mean, Nate, let's bring you in here. We think that if Biden wins, he will be president for, I don't know, what, three or four months before they remove him? I mean, he won't make it the first year, right? I mean, yeah. If he makes it through, like, two weeks in office. Because <laughs> here's how this is going to happen. He's going to get elected, and then he's going to go to the White House and he's going to be climbing the grand staircase or something. And he's going to conveniently slip and fall in a banana peel that was left there by a careless aide and fracture his skull or something and be declared unfit. So look for Biden to not be in office for very long at all. We're going to be called a QAnon or Canaan or what's that place called? <laughs> the conspiracy. QAnon. <laughs> oh great just no biden biden will be president for at least three weeks we believe that but no i mean you know in all seriousness Biden, if biden does win kamala has to start campaigning 
two and a half years in, right? Post primary, I mean, post midterm. So, you know, if he's, if he does, if he, you know, is fit and, you know, met last, last all four years and good for him, we don't want anything bad happen to the man, obviously he lasts four years, um, two and a half to three years in, it becomes Kamala's platform to do what she wants to do. So that would be, mm-hmm. I think the bigger concern, I think for the first, you know, two, two and a half years, Joe, whatever he thinks about fracking is, is probably gonna let things be get to the midterms. And then I think that's when you would probably see a, um, maybe something like this that'd be really controversial because it's not just Texas. You got Pennsylvania. Uh, now the, you, you don't have the federal lands up there like you do here, obviously. But it's just a, it's just the fact that you're you're pounding on that industry. And so if you're in Pennsylvania or Ohio or wherever West Virginia, you know you're going to lose um, some of those constituents. So that'd be my thing. And in all, in all in all honesty, was that I would think after the midterms, that's when you might see um, Biden trying to revoke federal lands. And that's assuming things are going good for him. So uh, an article came out uh, regarding flaring. Uh, I guess this was about a week. No, this was actually a little while back. We may have discussed some of this, but uh, investors are calling for uh, flaring to be uh, eliminated by 2025. Um, and a letter, uh, the Texas Railroad Commission sent out a letter um, and, and so they they were saying actions of leading operators demonstrate the financial and technical viability of ending routine flaring. Uh, so th- this conversation has been coming up and it's going to continue to be uh, continue to come up. I think with the extra pressure uh, being levied uh, by some folks um, on on California and and other areas, there's more and more pressure mounting right now on the oil and gas industry to stop flaring. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I expect that should Biden win. Um, you could see a lot of pressure on that issue for sure. Yeah, that's going to be done. Pretty. Much. I mean, I say done. It, it, there's going to be an, an enormous amount of pressure to, to get rid of that. And I would just say this, you know, be careful um, what you look for, you know, so what you, what you wish for. Because if you this group here, I don't know anything about this group. The California State Teachers Retirement System and Legal General Advi- Investment Management said, I, I don't really think that that um, that those folks are are in the best interest of what Texas oil and gas industry wants to do. Nor would I think that most most groups are are in the best interest. Um, and this is what you see. We talked about the deal with BP earlier. This is what you're seeing with the super majors is they are placating to a a part of the of the of the society that doesn't really care about their core, core business. Now you might want to get in the solar business, the wind business or renewable business or whatever. Good for you. I'm going to oppose that, but, but trying to balance this line of trying to placate um, the environmentalist movement is, is a tricky, is a slippery slope. There's environmental responsibility, which is one thing. And then there's trying to placate the newest threat and trend. Uh, that's the concern. And so, you know, if we want to talk about flaring, we, we, let's talk about it. That's a fine discussion to have. Um, but you know, be careful is all I would say is that, um, because you know, it's, you wake up one day and you go, Oh, well, we've got all these crazy regulations. And then these will be the same people upset because only big companies are out in the permian working, but, but we're going to put forth regulations that make it so impossible for small operators to be out there. So, um, that'd be my, my word of caution to them. And, you know, let's see here. Um, while, while I've got, do we talk about the who in, in climate change? The World Health Organization and climate change? Did we talk about that? I don't think so. Okay. Let me pull this up real quick. Um, uh, 
So, um, the World Health Organization recently said, I say recently, this has been um, a couple weeks, um, talked about, I didn't see this, on, uh, talked about climate change and how now is the time to fight it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We mentioned that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We did mention that. Good. So, um, yeah, here it is. It's uh, three weeks ago. Okay. So you probably talked about, it. but anyways, so, you know, you sit there and look at that and go, huh? Wow. Okay. So we're now worried about climate change when people. Yeah. I think it would, it would, we said something in regards, uh, to maybe, maybe it was me and you talking offline, but we said something in regards to, uh, California, they had the fires going, uh, Newsom came out and was saying, this is what the whole country's going to look like. Um, oh you know, no, that and, was this weekend. That was yeah, that weekend. was that was recent. Yeah, I think. Uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic has given us a glimpse of our world as it could be: cleaner skies and rivers. This is the head. This is the top dog at the World Health Organization. Yeah. In particular, the COVID nineteen pandemic has given new impetus to the need to accelerate the efforts to respond to climate change. The COVID nineteen pandemic has given us a glimpse of our world as it could be: cleaner skies and rivers. Just to be clear, Mr. World Health Organization, we have told you that on this show for years now, right? Live the Amish life. Like we've, we've said that, like, if that's what you want, live it. So this isn't breaking news to, to, to us, our listeners, but the, like when you read that quote, you go, hmm, okay, that's a little concerning that we're going to let this person um, who is responsible for lying about the interactions they had with China, uh, we're going to let those people dictate on policy moving forward. So anyways. I don't get off that tangent. It's just, it's just, it is concerning to, to let um, those folks kind of drive policy. Yeah. Well, you get X amount of million people unemployed and they celebrate the clean skies. We, we might be, uh, we might be missing something there. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned the WHO, there was a spiel. Uh, so the, this was, all right, so I, I can't pronounce words like this. Was it? Oh, come on, do it for us. Uh, Meridius, Meridius, I don't know. Uh, so, uh, this spiel, um, happened, which is one of the worst they've seen there in a long time. Uh, Japanese MV Wakashi, a bulk carrier ship recently ran aground off the southeast coast of Meridius. I'm going with Meridius. Anyway, so there, there's going to be, there's been a lot of protests and things that are that are going on about it. Anytime there's a major spill like this, you see, you see some backlash. Um, some of it may be rightful. Uh, I don't know if there was some sort of uh, fault of someone that's involved, but uh, it's a pretty significant spill, looks like. Yeah, and I mean, I think our sense on this is pretty, pretty similar, uh, pretty much the same. So. You know, if you're talking about an accident in the truest form of the word, everybody did their general best they could and something bad just happened. That's one thing. If you're talking about negligence, right, people, they weren't doing what they're supposed to do and something happened, then they should be punished. And, you know, if you're going to transport oil around the world, this is part of the risk that goes along with it. It's not good. You don't like it. But, you know, just bad things happen. And so um, it just depends on – it just depends on – um whether or not this was an intentional, well, I say an intentional, whether or not this was uh, negligence or whether this was an accident. And so I, I haven't followed the story close enough to say. 
All right. Well, now we are, we got a few stories left for our Texas roundup. Uh, first one, pretty exciting. Uh, I say exciting. Not really exciting. I don't know what the right word is, but the Venezuelan president says a U.S. spy was captured near a refinery and that they uncovered a plot to destroy one of the, one of the uh, refineries there. So uh, I'm curious to see how this plays out. Uh, I don't know if there's some sort of uh, imp- implied uh, there that U.S. has had been involved in some of the other uh, attacks at some of their other refineries. But um, yeah, here's one thing. The Gringo Empire wants revenge against Venezuela. It wants to prevent <laughs> Venezuela from producing all petroleum. I wasn't ready for that. Start read, read that again, please. I was not prepared. <laughs> I'll tell you. Yeah, so the Gringo Empire wants revenge against Venezuela. So he's going in, man. He's going hard. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's great. That's great. Yes. <laughs> it's so good. The Gringo Empire. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's just that's just lovely i love that quote oh man so, so we think we're down there trying to blow up your stuff i don't know i don't know i, I don't see why we want to get rid of a, a refinery right now at prices where they are but you know you never know power politics um i wouldn't put it past uh, anyone to to put something like that together especially uh, cia it says that this guy used to work for Let's see, he used to be a CIA operative in Iraq. Uh, he's a Marine. Yeah, so. The he, Gringo kind of, Empire. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. All right. Uh, buyer of Schlumberger frack unit now eyes lead over Halliburton. So kind of a misleading headline. They're not even close uh, to having a lead over Halliburton. They're just saying, now that we bought some of this, we hope to one day maybe to somehow get, you know, number one over Halliburton. Um, but as some of you may not, have, may not have heard, uh, Schlumberger is selling North American fracturing business uh, due to the COVID slump. Um, the value uh, was $448 million. And uh, so they're, they're getting, I mean, it's a, a pretty major acquisition in the, in the frack space. Yeah, they've struggled to make money, so it's not a surprise. And let's see, we have one more. One more. We have a Fort Worth area oil company makes a major discovery in West Texas. Uh, I just found this this morning when I was looking around at some uh, some news. So let's see, it is Barron Petroleum based in Graham, uh, which is really close. Uh, I think it's a little bit west of Fort Worth announced the discovery on Monday after working with scientist William Purves on the project since 2018. Um, they used some 3D stuff. I'll just sum it up. There's planning to, to drill like 60 wells uh, based on what they found in West Texas. It is in, what, what county was this? West Texas town of Ozona. It doesn't say the, it doesn't say the, uh, the county in the city of Ozona. 35 miles south of uh, of Ozona, actually. So, interesting stuff there. Um, maybe uh, maybe Barron can can get it and drill at a profit right now at $35 oil. Yeah, yeah, that'd be that'd be a that'd be a miracle. Crockett uh, County, thanks, Nate. Crockett County, thanks, Nate. You know, it's funny we haven't seen anything about the Barnett lately. 
I'm just saying. Sergio goes to Bloomberg, and all of a sudden he's, you know, he's gotten awful quiet over there. So, you know, coronavirus numbers are down in Dallas-Fort Worth area. So, just, just saying, if you want to drill somewhere, this is the place. Yeah, um, no risk of sickness here. Not yeah. much, at least. Yeah, yeah. I bear no responsibility. If, uh, this is entertainment purposes only. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Josh. Well, I think that's that's it. So, folks, be sure to click on the link before 1 p.m. Central Time um, to attend the Shell Roundtable webinar with Anas, Ellen Wald, David Blackman, and DRW. It will be from 1 to 3. Uh, we will, if there are questions, we'll reserve the last 30 minutes to take your question. Uh, do the best to get we all, all, all the ones we can to. If you can't make it, there will be a replay. We haven't announced where that will be or how you can find that, um, but we will be announcing that hopefully next week or so. So we're going to get everything out the door tomorrow. And then, Josh, uh, moving forward, we have our next roundtable in uh, October. Uh, we have Bill Bishop. We have Ling Ling Wee. We have um, David Firestein with the Bush China on the future of the U.S.-China uh, uh, the future of the U.S. China relationship. So, got that one, and working on some more for November and December. So, anyways, uh, thanks everyone for tuning in, and until next time, keep climbing. <laughs>